Hello and welcome to another Marketing Meetup podcast. My name's James and I'm really glad you're here. Uh, today we've got a talk from Mark Smith and Martin Coyle. Uh, they run a company called The Smiling CFO. I first met Mark uh, at the Birmingham Marketing Meetup where he did one of my favourite talks um, and he's run his own consultancy for years uh, after being a brand manager at Molson Calls and VP, Mar- VP of Marketing at Pelican Brands. Martin, his, uh, his partner in the business, was uh, also the marketing director of Molson Cause and then moved to be their CMO in Canada. So super experienced guys and um, their talk is specifically about budgets and how you can build and maximise this with your team and finance department. Um, they then move into the world of mental and physical availability and how you can use an understanding of that to help build your marketing strategy uh, and framework. Uh, and also potentially save some money doing so. They both have brains the size of fridges, which is useful, and um, it's been a a great opportunity for people to ask some interesting questions, which you'll hear at the end. I also wanted to just give a quick shout out to one of our favourite sponsors. I mean, they're all favourites really, but one of our favourite sponsors, Exclaimer. So Exclaimer have this really cool, very simple tool uh, that allows you to manage all your email signatures from one place but it also has a bunch of tech in it that means you can turn it into quite an effective marketing channel as well so if you're looking for more opportunities and ways to to drive uh, new customers and uh, and let people know about your campaigns you can do that universally from within an email signature Uh, it's a great service loads of the community are signing up to it and uh, i'd love it if you went and check them out as well so big thanks to exclaimer So that's my quick intro done. Uh, Thanks again for listening and we will see you in the new year. I'm going to hand over to Mark and Martin. Thank you very much, James, for that um, uh, very good introduction. Um, I am Mark Smith and this is my business partner, uh, Martin Coyle. Um, I won't go too much into the introduction because I think he did a great job there. So I've worked in brands marketing for 23 years. I've worked on small brands, national brands, international brands. And um, last year, I joined Smiling CFO as a partner. So that's my introduction. And this is Martin. Yeah, morning, everyone. Uh, so yeah, I work with um, Molson Coors most recently. So a global brewer. Um, the point I wanted to say really for the context of this presentation is whilst I've worked on a portfolio of global brands, I've also worked alongside some amazing founders when we've uh, acquired new businesses and then brought them in to the organization. So I'm hoping that the perspective you get from me today is relevant for people looking after big brands, but also people who are looking after small challenger brands. What I want to do is um, I want to kick off with a game that comes with a prize. So my first question to everybody, and James, let let us know if anybody can come up with this, but um, who remembers the game catchphrase started in 1986 and i think there was a famous presenter i think he went by the name of roy walker um so is, is anybody coming through to say that they remember that yeah yeah we've got lots of people in the chat okay lots of yeses. brilliant um so basically you have to come up with a catchphrase based on saying what you see and so what we're going to do is we're going to play this game and we've got a great prize 
for you, which is a bar of dairy milk for the first 10 people who can guess the catchphrase that we're about to, to play. And if nobody guesses it, then anybody who um, asks a lot of good, decent questions towards the end, then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll send you a, a bar of dairy milk. So just get in contact with James. So here we go. So the first person to type in the chat what they see um, wins. So here we go. James, are we getting any people coming through? Yes, we are. First one, I Ooh. think. So we've got doing a lot with a little. And it happened. Is that right? Is that the right answer? That is correct. And that is correct. Joe Royce, who uh, who I only saw a couple of days ago. Um, so, Joe, there's the first bar. Fantastic. Right. Well done. Congratulations. Um, so the, the answer is obviously doing a lot with a little. And the clue, of course, was in the name of the series of these marketing meetup talks. Um, so our specific brief was to take that sentiment and feed it through the lens of effective budgeting. Now, we're just going to slightly reframe, reframe this. So um, the brief that we believe is, if you only have a little, then don't try and do a lot. And as the great Roger Martin, author of the fabulous book, Playing to Win, would say, confident companies do less. And anybody who has been on the Mark Ritson um, MBA courses, when he talks about objectives, he talks about great companies have a handful of objectives. Brilliant, truly great companies have one or two objectives. So doing, being confident companies do less is a good thing. So in our talk, we hope to do four things. Number one, give you a budgeting framework to guide you on the structure of your budget. Number two, advocate that the fundamentals of mental and physical availability for the basis of a winning playbook form how best to invest your budget. And number three, we're going to dig a little deeper on, me on mental availability and what to invest in first. And then number four, how to make some choices so that you can have confidence in doing less. Just hang on to that phrase, confidence in doing less, because that's quite important. But now I'm going to hand over to Martin. Thank you, Mark. So this is the first um, thing that we offer up today that hopefully you can take away. Uh, it's a budget framework that I used. But for those of you um, who are familiar with brilliant people like Mark Ritson, Grace Kite, Burnett and Field, Byron Sharp, you're going to recognize some of the contributions that come into this framework. So we've just taken what we believe to be the best pieces and put them together on one page in terms of a set of guidelines. And it is a set of guidelines. It's not intended to be a set of rules and you'll need to flex it depending on your organization. But what I hope is that by using it, not only have you got something that then can be used across your teams, but also you can then be speaking to your finance partners for something that's very credible and very robust. So I'll walk you through each step. The first step being take a ZBB approach. So often I saw a year two budget submission being the same level as the previous year with a request for extra money to cover inflation. The principle of zero-based budgeting is of course that you start from zero every year which is a necessity if you're a small business and it's a revelation if you're a big business mm. because it forces you to take an honest review of what actually worked and what didn't. And if you're interested in this area, uh, Rachel Moss, CMO of uh, Camelot, 
did a good piece in Marketing Week uh, this year where she talked about Camelot's approach to ZBB. The second step is to apply 10% of sales revenue to advertising. So in looking at the ARC database, the Nielsen data, the work done by Paul Dyson, Grace Kite found that there was an optimum spend of between five and 10% of your net sales revenue to then be spent on advertising. And by doing that, you're most likely to achieve the excess share of voice that you need to then maximize your return on investment. And then of course, Mark Ritson being Mark Ritson took that great work from Grace Kite and the groups that I mentioned, and then turned it into guidance as to how you bring a budget process to life in the same way as you cook great chips. That article was, I think, October last year and is well worth the read. Step three, taking best practice um, from the likes of Unilever and Heineken, and this was certainly something that we used at Molson Coors, is operating with what we call uh, an 80-20 working spend to non-working spend. So that you spend 80% of your budget reaching the audience that you're targeting and you cap 20% of your spend on all of your other expenses, whether that be agency fees and other costs. So of course, this means then that your total marketing budget will be more than 10%. And then this will be familiar to people. The headline of uh, Burnett and Fields work long and short with this idea of 60% of your investment being spent on long-term brand building activity, 40% being spent on short-term activation is something everyone will be familiar with, I'm sure. But I wanted to call out another paper that I think is really powerful that Burnett and Field wrote for the IPA, Effectiveness in Context. And I think it's around about page 70 on that report. If you scroll down to that, they've actually put in a calculation. So you can take your brand, what category it's in, what life stage it's in, and calculate your own split. So it may be actually that it's 40, 60, 35, uh, 65 for your brand, uh, rather than 60, 40. Yeah, but really real, yeah, real gem of insight there. And then Byron Sharp um, would actually urge leaders to take whatever budget you've got and divide it by 52. So the message here is don't spend it all at once. And all too often we see big brand launches that swallow the majority of the budget in one go. Everyone enjoys the initial spike in performance, but as consumers' memories start to decay, the brand rate of sales, uh, rate of sales starts to slow down. The sales teams become a little bit restless because the customers starting to become restless. And then supply chain start to hassle you to say, when are you gonna take this volume out of my warehouse? So the general guidance here is just take what you've got and split it across the year, making sure you're reaching as many buyers of the category as you possibly can or staying fresh in the memory of those buyers. So let's have a look at a fictitious example to see how this all comes together. So we're going to take a company that's got a revenue of 20 million. Let's say we're going to operate with the 10% guideline. So we've now got 2 million to spend on advertising. If you apply the 80-20 rule, so the working to non-working, that means your budget will be roughly two and a half million in total, but you split your 2 million, 1.2 for long-term, 
and 800,000 for short term. But as I said earlier, those ratios can be manipulated to then fit your particular brand. So very quickly, you get from 2 million to 23,000 per week. Now, clearly, you don't just go, right, 23 every single week and there's no flex. The opportunity is to have flex. But if you suddenly start signing off activity that's 100 grand a week, then there's no way you can keep those uh, memory networks fresh in the minds of buyers across the whole year. It just won't happen. The other thing that I would offer up is make sure if you actually lead brand teams, uh, and particularly if you're responsible for a portfolio of brands, give everyone the same framework to operate within, and then really encourage those brand leaders to then connect with their senior sales leaders and start to align on the overall plan, not just the advertising plan, but your activation plan, your promotional plan. And then when you've got to a recommendation on a budget, and you'll probably need to step in once or twice just to help facilitate the final recommendation, only at that point cascade it down to the more junior members of your team. I think if you try and do it the other way around and you have bottom-up planning, you just end up wasting a lot of time. So give them the framework. You can give them complete empowerment if you want and sign off any budget that comes back, but I don't think that that's the reality of the world we operate in. So give them this guideline and then cascade it down through the organization. So in this first section, we've just wanted to provide you with a framework that's credible, no matter what the size of your organization. Uh, I'm going to hand back to Mark now, who's going to then start to explain why the fundamentals of mental and physical availability form the basis of budget optimization. Thanks, Martin. So I think Martin was... was telling us do not, don't do more with less and focus on being as effective as you can be as efficiently as possible. And luckily for us, there are some great minds guiding us along the way. Sometimes it, it can feel as though marketing theory is full of conflict with headlines such as differentiation versus distinctiveness to name just one example of the type of energy sapping headlines that we've been confronted with. You only have to open up LinkedIn for 30 seconds to find out um, how all these conflicts and confrontations are playing out. But the good news is, is that there is broad alignment that brands grow by building mental and physical availability. And if you go and have a look at the Ehrenberg Bass Institute website, you can see that there are a number of brands that sponsor that institute. And these people, these brands believe in building mental and physical availability. Some of these brands include McDonald's, Coca-Cola, and Diageo. Now, I know for a lot of people on this call, they are not working for Coca-Cola, Diageo, et cetera, et cetera, but the principles apply to everybody. Every company can take something from this. And so what is meant by physical and mental availability is that it is to be as easy to notice and buy as possible for as many buyers as possible across as many buying situations as possible. And so if we were to slightly reframe that for, for our talk today, it would be to be as easy to notice and buy as possible for as many buyers as you can afford to reach across as many buying situations as possible. And so what I want to do is I just want to tell you about a very quick story about a clumsy guy from Birmingham, that's me by the way, um, about, about what happened to me last year. So one day last summer, I was staying in a hotel in London and I needed some breakfast. 
And so whilst navigating the uh, collection of breakfast from the local Starbucks and various pieces of fruit, I was trying to be healthy at the time, I attempted a balancing act of said items through the hotel lobby and onward to my room. This was a brand new hotel, by the way. The coffee inevitably, as I'm trying to navigate opening the door, found the carpet, the wall, the doors in one drop. I completely destroyed a hallway of a brand new hotel. And it's quite remarkable just how far a Starbucks Grande Americano can spread. So mortified, I returned to reception to announce my avoidable mishap. With the raised eyebrows, the kind person told me, don't worry about it, we will deal with it. So I went off to Starbucks to get my coffee again. My body runs on coffee. Starbucks said it was on the house for my being an idiot. Their words, not mine. But it's important. This is not a story about Starbucks. And I'm coming on to the main, main thrust of this. I wanted to make it okay with the person at the hotel who was already looking very busy before I ruined their morning. So I thought Tesco for a treat would be the way to stay. Sorry. I had no idea what that treat would be, but it would be a chocolate of some sort. And so set in motion the work that the brilliant team at Cadbury do. Both physical and mental availability operating in unison. So first, mental availability. The recent communications from Cadbury ensuring the all-important category entry points of gift, saying sorry, wanting to please someone, was now cemented in my mind. And so from a physical availability perspective, and Cadbury's are the masters at this, merchandise well to ensure that the dairy milk bar was easy to find. At the precise moment, no other option in my mind was even considered. A Cadbury chocolate bar, large of course, because the coffee did find the wall after all, was purchased and a smile on the face of the person whose morning I had ruined. Great work, Cadbury. This is really great work. And this shows how um, mental and physical availability really do work in unison. Thank you, Mark. Uh, so mental availability is the likelihood of a brand being thought of in a buying situation. And the job as marketeers is for us to increase the odds, the likelihood of our brand being thought of in as many buying situations as possible. So Mark talked about mental availability and physical availability. I'm going to just hone in a little bit more on mental availability. Um, now, for you to really get into the richness of mental availability, you need to understand the metrics that drive mental availability. So Mark plugged one book today, which is The Amazing Playing to Win. My contribution to this morning's book club is uh, <laughs> Jenny Romaniak's Better Brand Health. This has been on LinkedIn many, many times. You've seen it. You'll be familiar with it, but you have to read it. It's a must read. It really is a must read. And Mark and I have probably read it 20 times now. <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's a fantastic read uh, and certainly a book that I wish had been written uh, when I was embarking on my brand management mm. career. So I don't really have time to take you through that whole book and I'm not going to be able to explain it as well as Jenny Romaniak, but I just want to give you a taster of it. And I'm going to walk you through the journey of how you build mental availability using Mark's dairy milk story. There's an overarching measure that's called mental market share. And you just need to think of this as your sales market share. Yeah, so when you're tracking your performance in the market, you want to know how much volume or how much value you've created 
relative to the rest of the market, you take a percentage and you go, okay, that's my mental market. Yeah, that's my sales market share. So if you're a big brand, you've probably got a market share of 10, 20%. That's the type of numbers that we strive for. Well, it's similar with mental market share, but we're just concerned with, look, there's all of these category entry points for a category. How often is my brand linked to those category entry points compared to my competitors? So what is my mental market share? And again, if you're doing well, if you're a strong brand, you're going to have a mental market share of 10, 20%. In other words, it's going to be very, very similar to your sales market share number. And there's three diagnostic measures that sit under mental market share, which is shown on this chart, mental penetration, network size, share of mind. But the journey really needs to start with prompted awareness. So as I say, I'm going to retrofit the Cadbury story and take you through this slide a moment. So unbelievably, Cadbury Dairy Milk came to the UK in 1905. I didn't do my homework. I've been caught out. I don't know when it got to Australia and I don't know when it got to South, South Africa. Africa. No. Uh, Next on, on my part. <laughs> I'll put it in the chat afterwards. Um, but look, if Cadbury had been applying this uh, process back then, the first thing they would have wanted to know is, is dairy milk associated to the chocolate category? I know it sounds very, very straightforward, but that's the first job. It's really the only awareness measure that matters. Mm. And, and in a moment, I'm going to then come back and put it into your world and just suggest some of the questions that you're going to want to ask for your brand. So let's assume that Cadbury did a good job at making sure buyers of chocolate realized that dairy milk was actually a chocolate bar. They then would have moved on to mental penetration. And what they would have been concerned with is, can someone like Mark make a link to a category entry point and my brand? So for Mark, it was, let's say, gift. So in that buying situation, did Cadbury come to mind? Great, job done. They've had a link. So mental penetration is, can your brand be linked to at least one category entry point? And then the next stage is really then as you start to spread and widen your messaging, that's network size. So just let me bring that to life for you. So on the left-hand side of this chart then are some examples of the category entry points and the links that were made to Cadbury Dairy Milk. So Mark talked about gift saying I'm sorry, wanting to please someone, make them happy. And actually, you may have now a new category entry point uh, link, which is because of the quiz that we did, you think about a buying situation, about giving prizes, and Cadbury may then come to mind. Big brands have a network size of around five to eight. We've got a brand that we're going to show you in a moment that actually has a network size of 10. Final piece on the journey to mental availability, that share of mind, it's really for the big brands primarily. It's their opportunity to look over their shoulder and see who's coming to take their space. So it really just starts to monitor competitor incursion. So that's as brief as I can make the journey. I know that is a lot to take in for now, but let's just look at what it might mean for you and your brands. 
So going back to prompted awareness, which really is the start, and I know it sounds obvious, but sometimes it's as simple as investing to get the basics right. So let's make this chart a little bit bigger. You'll see red, amber, and yellow on this chart. Every uh, brand, and this is eight FMCG categories, by the way, that we've taken from our database. Every one of the orange uh, or yellow uh, sections on this chart are basically people that don't even know that the brand in the category is part of the category. So we've shown them a logo in research and they still can't link that to the category that the brand owner is trying to operate within. And it's astonishing to see mm. how many of those, that applies to how many of those brands. So if you think you might be one of those, in whichever category you're in, then this is where you invest. And frankly, don't invest too much more in your communication unless you know what your score is. Mm. So make sure you understand your prompted awareness score. The next one is then um, mental penetration. So remember, you've got people now who buy the category and they know you're part of the category, but can they then link your brand to one of those category entry points? Just one, that's all we're talking about. So same database that I showed you for prompted awareness, look at all of the brands that are underneath that orange line. All of those brands cannot be linked to a single category entry point for people who actively buy that category. It amazes us when we look at that, and that's not to sound mm. critical of the brands that are operating, but again, just when you start to look at your data, and I should say this data is for people who buy the category, but don't buy the brand. Yeah, so so often we can be seduced, I think, by looking at data from people who already buy us. And what Jenny says in the book is you've got to look at who buys the category and the richness comes from the people that don't necessarily buy your brand. And so this chart, sorry, this chart is basically then giving you visibility of all the brands that buy the category, but don't buy the particular brand. And you can see that the majority of brands can't be linked to a particular category entry point. So if you think this sounds like you, then this is where you need to be allocating that pre precious budget to fix that problem. And then finally, in my examples, network size. So brands grow by building wider, fresher networks. Greg's have a network size of 10.8, which is the best out of all of the brands that we have in our database right now. Now, we haven't met the people at Greg's. We've shopped at Greg's frequently, um, but we haven't actually met them. So this is our view from afar. But when you look at their advertising campaign that says available everywhere, enjoyed anywhere, we've got a hunch that they buy into the principles mm. of mental and physical availability. And you've only got to look at the success of the brand overall to see that they understand how brands grow and they're constantly building new memory cues for people who will be eating on the go. So in this section, I've tried to give you a sense of how you can start to build a picture of the brand's mental availability. 
And the important thing to note is this isn't a really expensive exercise. You can buy the book for $20, $20, pounds, depending on where you are. Um, but you can, with the right understanding, get to this type of information. Hmm. Navigate your way through it. Yeah. So for our final piece, Mark's then going to just talk you through the importance then of making the right choices. So at this point, uh, we've been attempting to show you how you can use mental availability as your guide for focus and how to be confident in doing less. And again, we're calling that bit out. So to ensure that we've landed this point, we want to reference two themes that come from Adam Morgan's book, Eat the Big Fish. It's a great book. It's probably 20 years old now. Um, uh, whilst it was written with challenger brands in mind, it's clearly applicable to all brands. And so sacrifice most of what you want to do. This idea, idea of sacrifice is a path to growth and it costs you less, not more. There's a nice story in the book. It might be a made up one about Picasso, but it's powerful nonetheless. And so a visitor to his studio saw a huge block of stone sitting in the middle of the studio and asked the master what it was to be. A lion came the reply. And how do you make a lion out of this unhewn stone block? It's easy, said Picasso. I simply get a chisel and chip away at anything that doesn't look like a lion. So sacrifice and overcommit work together. There's no point making sacrifices if you don't know what you want to double down on. And we've shown that in the previous slides, there will be big clues as to where you should focus, whether you should, sorry, whether that be making sure that you're associated with the right category through to building wider, fresher networks that Martin talked about in the minds of those category buyers. And as the picture on the right, uh, shows as a, as a martial expert smashing through bricks conveys if you don't fully commit to it it's going to hurt to anybody who's tried to break a brick it's going to hurt and so there is a winning playbook that can be applied to the budget that you have available the intent was not for us to dive deeply into the tactics but to provide you more with a framework and guidelines reflective of the current thought leaders in the worlds of marketing and strategy, what they do agree on. And there is a wonderful article by Roger Martin. Again, please grab hold of this book. It is fantastic. A wonderful article by Roger Martin in How Brands Grow and Plan to Win, which was a subsequent article that he wrote after this book, uh, published in July of this year, where he explains why he embraces the concepts of both mental and physical availability and repeats a previous assertion that he sees marketing and strategy indistinguishable from each other. Marketing is strategy, strategy is marketing. We can't think of a better way to conclude this session with a highlight from the article. And that is simply this. Never forget to think about how to build and maintain the physical and mental availability of your offering. Otherwise, the rest of your playing to win work will go to waste. Perfect quote. So... Let's end on a note of uh, festive good cheer. There is a winning playbook that you can use, no matter how big, small your brand is. And so Merry Christmas. That is awesome. We would uh, be delighted to answer any questions that you have. So we'll just Brilliant. stop sharing. Thank you, chaps. That was, um, that was super there you go, James. interesting. It's um, one of the, I should get my Christmas hat back on. I was getting a bit sweaty in it. So uh, <laughs> going to keep it festive. Um, so I... I've probably come from a different uh, end of the scale for you guys. I haven't worked in, you know, 
hundreds and hundreds of million pound businesses. I've worked in smaller companies uh, and worked for SMEs. And I think a lot of our audience, I saw some some comments early on, uh, uh, sort of Rachel saying that she's got less than 2%, Emma got less than 1%, Grace got less than 2%. And actually thinking back to some of the brands I worked with, I don't think they even knew what percent they were spending on marketing. They were just given a budget. Um, what would your advice be to somebody who, presumably, you can you can work it out uh, fairly fairly easily once you know what the uh, sort of sales revenue is uh, and what you spent the previous year? If somebody is sat at the kind of one percent mark, uh, what would what would be your advice other than going? Well, these two guys on the internet said <laughs> I should spend ten on the internet. <laughs> like, there's there's going to be a a real challenge for somebody who's got <clears throat> one or two percent to get to five or ten percent because there's a there's a big difference between five yeah. and ten percent. Like, what yeah. what would uh, what would your advice be? Yeah. I think the the first thing, and I think even Les Burnett would say this when they're talking about their 60-40 allocation of budgets as well, is you're going to be on a certain life cycle, aren't you? And the, and the first phase of growth for lots of brands will actually be driven predominantly through physical availability, uh, whether that be digitally or in-store. So I think you have that first phase. Um, I mean, Sharps, which was, uh, and Sharps Doombar, which was part of the portfolio uh, and a business that we acquired at Molson Coors, they had this really great, one, 10 and 100 mile strategy that became an additional part of the framework that they operated. So first of all, everyone within a mile of the brewery needed to understand what Sharps was, then 10 miles, mm. then 100 miles. And that was the first phase and you built your marketing investment to support that plan. So you've got to recognize and, and we recognize that there'll be a certain context and a certain geography that you're operating within. I would say that there's then, you shouldn't underestimate the value of the overall package that you're putting forward. Uh, so we're just talking about 10% being advertising, but there's obviously a number of different elements of the marketing budget. Um, so I'd, I'd bear that in mind. But we'd also say that instinctively, 1%, 2%, sounds incredibly low and the reality without using Mark Ritson's language around what the impact is for small brands if they continue not to be able to find ways to invest but it will be incredibly difficult you know and that's why we've tried to say look just take one step at a time don't try and build loyalty if people aren't linked to don't know that you're linked to the right category um, but I don't think it's a fair challenge for a brand person to be year on year out just getting one percent of the budget. Mm. The brand will decay. Yeah, and or at best stay where it is. And that's, uh, that's I think if you can if you can spend a little money and buy that Jenny Roman that book, then it will really start to put some of the, the 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 building blocks in that person's mind in terms of right. Well, these are the things that I really need to contend with, and a one to two percent marketing budget probably isn't enough. Yeah, that's interesting. And and actually, you you touched on the fact um, that it was advertising. One of the, one of the questions in here um, was about uh, all the all the elements of marketing. Um, yeah. So that might be you know building a website. That might be yeah. uh, you know an exhibition. Like, is are you talking about five to ten percent being purely on advertising, and or or is that the whole yeah. 
So yeah, so five to 10 on advertising, um, but then recognizing that yes, there is other expenditure. Um, and there was a recent survey done, I, I really can't remember who made this contribution, um, but I can uh, fact check it and then come back and put it in the chat. But it's broadly saying that in uh, B2C businesses, you've got something like 10 to 15% of revenue in total. And on uh, B2B, it was something like 7 to 12% of your total budget. So I think that fits as well to the 5 to 10% advertising range, total budget somewhere between 7 and 15%, depending on the, uh, whether you're B2C or B2B. Yeah. So being, being slightly contrarian here, um, so thinking about our own business, the, you know, the marketing meetup, yeah. we haven't really spent anything on mm. advertising uh, and, and have still managed to achieve like, yeah. growth. But a large part of what we do is about getting our message out there and, and communicating yeah. on, you know, building our LinkedIn profiles, yeah. um, you know, creating content to go onto YouTube, et cetera. Yeah. Are there, you know, are there, is it fair to say that like advertising doesn't have to be the thing, but actually it's more about the investment that's the, that's more important. I don't think advertising has to be the thing from day one. But at some point, advertising is going to have to be the thing. So as Marketing Meetup continues its incredible journey, if all less, if all the marketing data and gurus are to be believed at some point for you to kick on to the next level, you're then going to need to allocate more on advertising. And so the great work that you do and Joe do and through social channels, at some point, if you want to get bigger and global you're going to have to extend your reach in some way and there's been so many case studies recently haven't there where brands have done an amazing job in the first phase and even the second phase of their development through what they would say not really spending on advertising and then saying okay to kick on to the next level they've started to realize you know whether that be companies as big as Airbnb or mm. even Chocoloni recently saying we're now investing in the next phase of our expansion. That's really interesting. And that's, that's yeah. kind of, I could, you know, we talked about, we've, we've got some events in America and we're, we're building some small communities, but I can feel that it's going to be a lot harder because we're not mm. there. Yeah. And therefore I can imagine that we'll, we'll have to spend money on, on advertising. Yeah. So no, that's really interesting. Thank you for that. Um, Alex uh, has asked, uh, how would you measure mental market share for b2b brand with a limited budget are there are there some basic tools that you would that you would use to do that yeah i think i think um measuring mental mental market share um you, you know so if you've got as martin was saying in in the example um you would know what kind of um sales market share that you have and so mar market mental share you would expect to, to run in parallel um, with that. So that, that would be the number that you would expect to observe. Um, to be able to, to measure mental market share, then you would need to do a, a mental availability assessment um, and you would um, uh, do some qualitative research, you do some quantitative research and you would get into understanding the buying situations that exist for that particular category. And then you would start to measure how many of those category buyers can link those brands to that category? 
And so there is a an assessment that you can go through to be able to achieve that. And that's what we would always recommend. Because I think, you know, what what, what you have to do is you have to start from the perspective of, well, you need to have this data to be able to, to kick on and make recommendations to the to the board or to the people who are signing off on, on marketing budgets in the future. And so a good start point would be to have the ability to measure mental market share. Yeah, no, that's cool. And actually there was a, a webinar last week all on research. So if people uh, wanting to know tools, tricks, approaches, that sort of thing for small right up to, to big, um, then that's a, that'd be a useful uh, her name is Dana. If you go go looking back on the previous webinars, that's that's really good. Um, an anonymous person has said, um, and I love this one. Any tips on changing the? But we've always done that. Uh, yeah. so, to, um, uh, you know, like we've always advertised in that magazine, um, especially mm. as there's no proof of of success. Like, how do how do you uh, how do you tackle that? Well, I I think again, you know, it's. It will come down to understanding, you know, what is your um, prompted awareness? What is your uh, mental penetration? What is the network size? And it's about gathering the evidence for you to be able to say, yes, that is the right thing that we are doing because we're seeing that mental penetration is growing or network size is growing. So therefore, you can probably make the assumption that what you have done is working, especially if those numbers are heading in the right direction those numbers are heading in the wrong direction or it just intuitively you look at the numbers and you've read the book that says, well, I should be scoring between five and eight and you're scoring between three and four, then you can probably start to make the hypothesis that maybe what we're doing isn't working. But I think you have to have the evidence to begin with to be able to put those building blocks in place to answer that question. It's not a, oh, I intuitively I don't think we should do it I think you just need some more evidence to be able to help you have that discussion you know this is about collaboration with those finance people um and and your peers it's it's you know evidence is always going to be the way through yeah I've, I've worked with somebody for a long time that's been advertising in a magazine for years and years and years and it's it's an industry magazine that I'm pretty sure nobody reads um but it's that it's almost that fear of missing out these competitors will put you know, uh, an advert in there, and mm. like, no, I'll keep spending a thousand pounds a month on this advert. And I'm like, there's literally no evidence to, you know, um, and I know there's there's you know, anecdotally there's there's stuff that you have to do that you can't measure, um, but that's a big part of his budget, you know, and it's uh, it's one of those ongoing arguments. So I feel for whoever asked that question, it's uh, it's a challenge to to say that. Yeah. Um. So we've got a, a question. The next one here uh, is. How do you cost-effectively define your category entry points? I guess this is slightly off off topic, but um, but yeah, I guess if you don't know what your category entry points are, how do you how do you work that bit out? Well, there's a there's a you know the way that we would do it is there is a there is a piece of qualitative research that is done where we go and um, find people who buy the category. So are there people who buy chocolate? Yes, there are. Let's go and have a conversation with them and find out all of the buying situations that they would associate with that category. Now, the question is, um, how would you do that on a cost-effective basis? So we would do it from a qualitative perspective, and then we'd move into um, uh, quantitative, sorry, we'd move from qualitative into quantitative, and that's how we, how we would do it. And so the question was, how would you do that cost-effectively? And you would be amazed that if you can find some of your category buyers, some customers, and just start having just one-on-one -on -one conversations with them, 
you'll start to get some of them. Now, you won't be able to put numbers to them to say, right, well, we're this is the hierarchy of category entry points. This one is more important than this one. But at least you'll have a start in 10, 12, 15 category entry points. And that will put you ahead of most of the people that you compete with because you've spoken to some people who buy the category and you've got some ideas of why they buy the category and why your brand is associated with that. And that's how, that's how we would work through that. Yeah. And I think um, the, the tip that I would give, cause I think that's uh, absolutely spot on is just remembering the journey. So all you've got to do first of all, for your brand is to get yourself linked to one category entry point that's mm. relevant for that category understanding how important that category entry point is in the category so you don't pick the 20th one but you're somewhere up towards the top is important but if you can't do the full piece of work just identifying one that you think your brand can be associated with is really powerful and then all you've got to do is find five more because that's your long-term play i now need to be linked with five because i know big brands on average are linked to five to eight so just take it one step at a time. And even if it's with friends and family over the mm. Christmas period and just say, right, you've all come to my house. I've just given you turkey. I've got some <laughs> questions for you. It's it's a start. Yeah. And it's it's something that, you know, again, this goes back to the webinar last week with, with research where Joe and I have spent, uh, we do it every every sort of six months or so. We just sit down for a day and talk in little twenty minute slots to people in the community and ask them questions. Yeah. And actually, the first set that we did, we were just chatting with them. We didn't really know what to ask them. It was just kind of like, mm. what, what are your problems? Where do you hang out? What's your you know, where do you work? Like we didn't know really anything about the community, but that helped us define the questions a bit better the next time round because yeah. we knew that you know, the platform that they hung out on was more important than necessarily the uh, seniority of their of their role because we're open, you know, our community is open to everybody. What we really wanted to know is where do we where do we find them? And, yeah. you know, I guess I guess those questions, you'll instinctively know your brand uh, will have one category entry point and through talking to them, you'll maybe discover the others uh, as, as, it, as it goes. Um, yeah. We've got another question here from uh, an anonymous person saying, uh, because of smaller budgets, uh, agencies are recommending us to focus on attention metrics and only high attention formats. This is quite the opposite of reaching more people. What are your thoughts on uh, only being high attention platforms uh, and formats where uh, formats getting more cut through? I guess that goes back to your, your sort of split of uh, kind of long and short. Yeah, and, and I think... Um attention is part of the story isn't it i think where we're building this out from is trying to find consensus in the marketing world you know because lots of people don't agree on a lot of things so we've tried to ground this on but this is where there is agreement as you work your way through then to trying to build mental availability and you're then buying certain media in certain environments and clearly attention becomes a really really important element but I don't quite understand the premise of the question in terms of, well, don't worry about that, just focus on this. To me, the objective is reach. And then within reach, to maximize reach, it's to maximize attention. And then the brilliant guys at System One can walk you through mm. how your creative can start to do that. Yeah, I think also there's potentially the risk that 
short-term activation mm-hmm. stuff works really well for agencies to look good. Um, and, Measurable. Yeah. Uh, they go, oh, cool, we've got a project. And yeah. it's only six months. So let's do all the measurable stuff. Let's do yeah, all yeah. the, you know, the catnip. Um, yeah. Whereas actually the brand itself needs to invest in in brand. Um, yeah. And because hopefully that brand is going to be around for a long time. And, you know, yeah. that's the, I guess that takes a, a more experienced sort of marketer to sort of turn around and go, no, actually that's, you know, it's important that we do the, the, the long-term stuff. Um, and there's no and and there's no better people you know if you went and read the Binet and Field long and short of it that will that will really start to help. Yeah, um, and actually I heard Ritson the other day talking about how uh, the long term stuff is often as effective as the short term activation in driving sales anyway. Um, yeah. So sort of short term sales, the long term play is actually driving long t- uh, short term. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Revenue, which I think is is really interesting. So, um, we've got somebody here that says uh, I'm in a micro events company. My CEO uh, is happy for me to try new things in marketing, but likes to see measurable results. This will be something that is quite common. Uh, so, how can we measure our mental our mental availability and see if it's improving? Yeah. So I think to me that just comes back to the metrics side of. Um, mental availability. So mental availability is a headline you can't measure, but then when you start to think about mental market share and the other metrics that sit below it, I think that's what then starts to be in your scorecard. So Mm. the CEO needs to align to, okay, that's a meaningful metric, which means that he needs to be on board or they need to be on board with the concept of mental availability. Um, But you'll need to then just break it down for them uh, and then as Mark said in one of his examples, there are correlations that can then help guide you. So I don't know enough about a micro events company to pick the right metric right now, but I know that in my previous organizations, I would have been looking to make correlations to then know what I need to look at next. So if my mental market share is higher than my sales market share, then I know my brand's got real potential but I maybe haven't got the right distribution. I'm mm. not easy enough to buy. Whereas if my uh, share of market is higher than my mental market share, then I've got my physical availability doing most of the heavy lifting and I'm not spending enough, reaching enough people to then make sure I'm thought of in the right buying situation. So there's a, there's a number of correlations that you can use. As I said, I don't really understand the micro uh, experiential business enough to give a specific answer, but I'm happy to chat offline and, and give some thoughts. Yeah. Having that in that in that boardroom, I think I would just make a more general point to say if you can think about three E's in the way you construct your argument and just go, where's the evidence? What's most effective? And I commit to spend it efficiently. In my experience, if I receive presentations that way it lands really well. And when I've gone to try and get uh, more money, it's also landed really well. I love that. That's Good tips. Yeah, well, that's like Tim Post. Three E's. There you go. <laughs> Stolen from our network. Stolen from. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and what I will do for, for people that are still on the call, I'll um, uh, I'll link to your LinkedIn afterwards so that people can, can ask further right. questions because there, there are still right. a, a bunch more questions on there. Um, and on the um, on on the budgeting 
bit that Martin did right at the beginning, we have got some LinkedIn posts and um, some blogs on our website that really start to go into a lot more detail. Cool. So you, yeah. that, that will start. I can, I can link to stuff in the email afterwards. Fantastic. Right. That'd be great. Cheers. Um, uh, there's a there's a question here uh, from Mark that that references in his question about the best way to engage with a CFO. And we've had people talk about this before, but I think it's really important that um, you know if you're a uh, a creative and you're coming up against somebody who talks in numbers, like what's the have you got any sort of uh, advice for maybe a young uh, or sort of midweight marketer who's who's trying to speak to somebody on the board uh, and specifically the finance person um how, how do you what's the best way to approach that i think you'll be perfect for this one <laughs> yeah i think the first thing my first tip would be don't hit them cold with the creative one because there's nothing more nerve-wracking if you then go into a room and present creative that it's just you've nurtured and nurtured to a point you're so proud of and then you hit someone cold you want a reaction that maybe doesn't get the reaction you want because you're presenting to people who are very analytical. So I wouldn't, I would make sure that you've built an ongoing relationship with whether it be your CFO or your finance partner. The second thing I would say is that actually in my experience working with a number of CFOs, they love this stuff. <laughs> you know, they do like being involved in creativity and they do understand more about branding than perhaps we think. But I think sometimes the way in which we present it is almost starting from the point that maybe they won't. So mm, good point. I think build the relationship with your finance partner, don't hit them cold, but don't assume that they don't want to engage. So yes, definitely deliver the evidence, tell them why you think it's going to work, but also play on the emotional side as well. Don't try and sell in your idea just with a rational argument. That's important, but allow the creativity to come through as well and, and the belief. Um, but don't overpromise would be my final bit. I, I heard so many presentations. This is the ad that performed the best in research that we've ever, ever had. Find a really, really credible way of tracking it, testing it. I think it's great. More and more companies are using system one to then check mm. their creative before they put it out in the world. Um, so yeah, get that balance, build the relationship, don't just go rational, but pick a decent data point and then allow the CFO to have some sort of input. And frankly, if you don't want them to have input in the creative, why are you showing it? Don't show them. <laughs> and this is why this is why you're called the smiling CFO as a company. So you exactly. can give a new people a smile. Yeah. That's brilliant. Well, thank you, chaps. Thank you so much for uh, for giving a brilliant presentation. Um, I can send you all the questions afterwards that will give you LinkedIn content for days. Um, this is our last session uh, of the year. Um, so massive thank you to everybody that has uh, followed us this year and, and been involved in the in the community. It's been it's been an absolute joy. We're going to get Joe back in the new year as well. So everybody's looking forward to seeing Mr. Glover back on screen. Um, and all I'd say to, to sort of finish off is please do go and thank the, the sponsors that have, have helped this thing happen. Uh, and I'll follow up an email later on this afternoon. And um, yeah, with all the with all the links that you, cha you chaps have very kindly shared with us. But um, just leaves me to say, have a wonderful Christmas. Go get your Christmas hats on. Get the eggnog out. And, uh, and enjoy yourselves and we'll see you next year. Catch you later, guys. <laughs>